Take your Bibles this morning and open to the Gospel of Matthew. Over to Matthew chapter 1. And I want to begin this Sunday morning, this last Sunday before Christmas. I want to begin by reading through both Matthew and Luke's account of the birth of Christ. I want us to look at this invasion of the extraordinary into the lives of ordinary people. See there in Matthew chapter 1, here in Matthew's gospel, we we get to see things from Joseph's perspective. Uh, Matthew tells us the story from Joseph's point of view, and in this text we don't don't see any shepherds. There isn't a manger in this text. Instead, instead we simply find a, a man in a difficult situation who is given overwhelming, staggering, extraordinary news. Look at the text. Let's start in verse 18. Matthew tells us, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her to break off the betrothal quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Before we move on to Luke, I just want to take a moment and ask you if you could imagine yourself in that situation. Can you imagine yourself in, in Joseph's sandals, so to speak, in that moment? I mean, think about it. At first, you're, you're saying, okay, my betrothed, she's been what? unfaithful to me so i'm trying to figure out a way to move on from this broken relationship without you know without putting her to shame do it in grace do it in kindness then all of a sudden you have a dream and an angel comes to you in that dream and the angel gives you this stagger announcement hey joseph things are far different than you imagine your bride to be is actually carrying a child conceived in holiness not in immorality And the child will be the promised Emmanuel, God with us. He will be the savior of your people. Imagine waking up from that dream. When we worked through the Gospel of Mark, I used to say this all the time. These things really happened. Sometimes we read these stories and we almost feel like, well, these are are fairy tales or these are fiction. This really happened. So imagine being in that moment. Imagine waking up from that dream. Imagine being this ordinary man, Joseph, who now finds yourself thrust into the story of the extraordinary. But Joseph wasn't the only one to get such a message, was he? Now turn over to Luke's gospel. Turn over to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. And here we read about the announcement that had come earlier to Mary. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Look what she was told. <laughs> Verse 26, we read, in the sixth month, and that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which has been being talked about previously in this text, we read that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, was Nazareth a 
a bustling metropolis, a major city. No, it was a, a podunk town. It was out of the way, right? It was this no-nothing town. But he sent there to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he, this angel Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Amen? And Mary said, I love her response, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Again, imagine finding yourself in that situation. Think about it. Here is this this young, faithful woman who was told that she will miraculously conceive a child. No husband, no marriage yet. And as staggering as all of that must have been for Mary, it's actually small potatoes compared to what she's told about who this child will be. Just look again at what the angel tells her. He says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will have no end. And all this is going to happen because the child will be of the Holy Spirit. He will be called the son of God. You can imagine that announcement coming to you. Imagine finding yourself in that staggering situation. Again, we see just an ordinary, everyday person. This is just a young girl from this out-of-way city of Nazareth. But here she is, thrust into the middle of this story of the extraordinary. Now turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Luke. And here Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus. Luke begins there, chapter 2, verse 1. And... Some of you could probably recite this from your days in the Sunday School Christmas program, right? Or if you've watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special a lot. Verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered to be taxed. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And then verse 10, here comes another announcement. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Can you imagine being part of that scene? Imagine being one of those those shepherds out on the hillside. You know, you're just minding your own business, right? Just watching the sheep. When all of a sudden you have the most glorious, extraordinary experience that you have ever had or will ever have in your life. And not only is your night changed by that experience, but your perspective on everything is changed by that experience. Again, look at the announcement that was given to him. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you what? Just some interesting little tidbits that, you know, somewhat curious about. No, good news of great joy that will be for all people, all people. For unto you, for unto you, ordinary shepherds out on the hillside, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I love that announcement. I love it. And I love that it was given to just a bunch of ordinary guys out doing an ordinary job. It was a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of shepherds. Back in those days, being, being a shepherd, that was not a glorious calling. <laughs> that was a lowly calling for ordinary guys. But to those ordinary people, God announces that he is doing something extraordinary. To these shepherds and to Mary and to Joseph, God announces he is sending the Savior. He is invading their ordinary lives with true, life-transforming, universe-altering, extraordinary But here's the thing. I was thinking about this this week. I wonder if they understood how extraordinary this story really was. I wonder if they understood. I mean, these moments that these people find themselves in, Joseph's dream, Mary's encounter with the angel, the the shepherds out there, you know, the hillside filled with heavenly hosts. Those are all staggering moments. Those are some pretty overwhelming moments. But as staggering as those moments were, and as full as the announcements are, there's a lot of information given in those announcements. I wonder if they really grasped the gravity and the glory of the story in which they found themselves. I wonder that about them, and I wonder that about us as well. I wonder that about us as well. Do we really understand the staggering reality? Do we really understand the, how, how extraordinary is the coming of Jesus? Do we understand the gravity and the glory of his coming and what it means for ordinary people like you and me. That's what I want to look at this morning. I want us to look at the extraordinary event that is the coming of Jesus. I'm praying that you see how extraordinary it actually is and what it means for ordinary people like you and me. That's what I want us to look at this morning. And to help us see this, this extraordinary event for ordinary people, we're going to actually step outside the gospel accounts this morning 
And we're going to turn instead to the words of the Apostle Paul. We're going to actually turn to our study of the book of Colossians. We're going to return to the book of Colossians. So go ahead and turn over there to Colossians chapter 1. And although this is the Sunday before Christmas, and normally I would do some kind of special Christmas message today, I thought that the text that we've been working through in Colossians speaks volumes to the reality of Christmas. So I thought to myself, well, Ryan, why go anywhere else? We've got it right here. So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to allow Paul's words here in Colossians to help us understand that the staggering glory and gravity of what is recorded for us in those opening chapters of Matthew and Luke. I want to listen to Paul explain how extraordinary it is, the coming of Jesus, and, and the hope that it brings for ordinary people like us. Now, the last several weeks, uh, we've been patiently... <laughs> And thoroughly unpacking verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1. Maybe some of you feel it's a little too thorough, a little too patient. But here's the reason we're going so slow through these things. It's because they're so important. I mean, all the word of God is profitable. Amen? It's all important. but, But here we find this rich and beautiful description of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I just want us to slow down and savor it. Here we find what we've been calling in this series the resume of Christ, the resume of Christ. Paul shows the Colossians, and the Spirit has given us the word. He's showing all of us. Here's the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Here's the resume of Christ. Trust in Christ. You see who he is. That's what Paul's been showing us. And so we've been looking at this resume. It begins in verse 15. Follow along as I read. Paul says here, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here, Paul gives the Colossians, and again, the Spirit of God has given us this staggering picture of who Jesus is. And what we see here is Jesus is not ordinary, is he? He's not ordinary at all. He is extraordinary. Paul shows us that that Christ is both the Lord of the universe and the Lord of redemption. He shows us that Christ is the one who has created all things, and then Christ is also the one who has undertaken the work of making all things new. He has created all things, and then he is making all things new. He shows us. This is the reality of the one, think about this, the one who was born of a virgin, the one who was born in Bethlehem. This is the reality of the one who was born in that lowly stable, the one who, though born so lowly, came to fulfill a glorious purpose. What's that purpose? Look at the text. The reconciliation of the entire universe to God. Here Paul shows us the glory of the one who has come and why his coming is the hope for all humanity. Why his coming is the hope for all humanity. Now, before we start to unpack this this hope, why his coming brings hope, let, let me just remind you of what Paul has shown us about who Jesus is. Let me just remind you of what we've already looked at in verses 15 to 17, because Paul's already shown us this wonderful glory of who Jesus is. Over Again, over the last several weeks, we've been unpacking verses 15 to 17, so I'm not going to go back through it in detail. I just want to summarize it for you. 
But what Paul is showing us here in these verses, verses 15 to 17, is the one who has come, the one who was, was born and placed in that manger, he's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of the universe. As the old hymn asks, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Paul shows us. He answers the question. He's the king of glory. He's the Lord and the maker of everything. That's what Paul shows us here in verses 15 to 17. And we've been walking through this. We've seen first that Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the revelation of God to all creation. That's what Paul means by that first title that he gives Christ there in verse 15. The image of the invisible God. Paul's explaining that that the otherwise unknowable, transcendent, invisible God is made known to us, is truly made known to us through who? Yeah, through Christ. If you want to know God, you have to know who? Is there any other way? There's no other way. If you want to know God, if you want to truly know God, you have to know Christ. Jesus, the Son, perfectly reveals God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the revelation of God to all creation. But Paul continues He shows us that he's more than the revelation of God to all creation. He's also the master over all creation. And that's what Paul's driving at by that second title. The firstborn of, or probably better said, over all creation. As we've looked at, that's Paul's way of saying that Jesus is the master of the house that is all creation. He's the master of the house. As we've seen, this title, firstborn, is all about rank. It's all about rank. In the ancient household, the firstborn was the one who was in charge of everything. He was the preeminent one. He was the one whose, whose authority, the son's authority, stood over everything else in the household. And that's the picture that Paul wants the Colossians to grab a hold of. He wants them to realize that this is Jesus' role. That's his position over all creation. He is first in rank. He holds authority over everything. He is preeminent over the household that is all creation. And he holds that role. Because as Paul says, look at the text here, verses 16 and 17, he holds that role because by him, what? All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus is the master over all creation because he made it all. (laughs) He made it all. So, of course, he's the master over all of it. He's made it all. It all centers on him. He transcends it all. He's not some created being. He's not somehow dependent upon creation. Instead, creation is dependent upon him. He's the one who sustains it all. As Paul says, he holds it all together. So Paul can rightly say Christ is the first one, the preeminent one over all creation. He's not simply the revelation of God to all creation. As as amazing as that is, as staggering as that is, He's also the Lord of all creation, the maker, the sustainer, and the goal of everything. And this is the one who has come. This is the extraordinary one who has come. This is the one who was born in Bethlehem. This is the one, think about this is the one who was carried those nine months in Mary's womb. This is the one who was born that night and wrapped in swaddling claws and laid in a manger. This is the one who the shepherds visited that night, who Mary and Joseph held in their arms. This week I got to hold some babies, brand new babies in my arms. It's a precious thing. This is the one that they held in their arms, but they held in their arms the one who holds everything in his. Think about it. That night, the eternal Lord of the universe, the preeminent one over all creation, was born in Bethlehem 
and given the name Jesus. But here's the thing, that wasn't his beginning. Any, any more than his conception overshadowed by the Holy Spirit was his beginning. Paul's showing us here that the person, the person of God the Son had always existed. He'd always existed. He, he, had, he was the one who had made the universe. He had upheld the universe from, from the first dawn of creation. He, he transcended the universe. All of the universe, time included. He'd always been. But then at a moment in time, as Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, at the perfect moment in human history, all according to the Father's plan, the eternal Son took upon himself our humanity and entered into our world. He, the Lord of the universe, became flesh, as John says in his gospel, and dwelt among us. And I can say that, I could talk about that for another couple hours. But would we ever scratch the surface of how extraordinary that is? I mean, how extraordinary that is. Here's the thing I was thinking about this week. No matter how amazed the shepherds were on that first night, no matter how Joseph, how overwhelmed Joseph might have been by the dream or what happened that night, it still wasn't close enough to what that moment deserved. It wasn't even close to what that moment deserved. No matter how many angels might have filled the sky that night, or no matter how much Mary pondered those things in her heart, it still was enough for that moment. That moment was so glorious. I mean, think about that. In that moment, it was, it was the dawning of Emmanuel. God with us. Eternal God. God the Son. The one who transcends time and space. The one who made and sustained the heavens. The one who called the stars into existence. The one who created glorious angelic beings. The one who made our earth and put it in its orbit. He had now come to earth. And was among us. Clothed in our very humanity. Again, can we even begin to fathom how how extraordinary that is? I was thinking about this week. The more you, your mind goes down that road, <laughs> I mean, it staggers the mind that tries to pursue it. The eternal, the infinite, now a babe in a manger, dependent, helpless, this child existing in this moment of time and space. Knowledge is too wonderful for us, isn't it? It's too glorious. But yet here it is, given to us. It's given to us. This is the one who was born of Mary. This is the glory of the one who has come. He's the Lord of the universe. The creator and sustainer of everything. And he'd come. He'd come. But what Paul shows us next in this text is that this one, this Emmanuel, God with us, didn't just come to be marveled at. He came with a mission. He came with a mission. Here in verse 18 of this resume, Paul, Paul shifts his focus. He moves from speaking about Christ in relation to, to creation, and now he draws our attention forward to speaking about Christ's role in redemption. He shows us that this one, this one who is the exalted Lord of everything, took upon himself, entered into our, took upon himself our humanity, entered into our world, and he came 
to save us. Here Paul shows us that this one who is the Lord of the universe came to be the hope for the universe. He came to be the hope for the universe. And Paul shows us this first by a series, uh, a series of titles that he gives to Christ. Just like in the first half of this resume, uh, Paul gives multiple titles here to Christ. He begins here in verse 18 by telling us that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And Paul is showing us here that that Christ is the life-giving sovereign over the people of God. He is the Lord over all of those who have been redeemed. He is the head of his body, which is us, the church. Paul also says that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And this is Paul's way of telling us that Christ is the pioneer of the resurrection. He's the one who stands preeminent over resurrected life. He, he possesses resurrected life. Remember from the book of the Revelation, the, Jesus is speaking with the apostle John. And he tells John this. This is in chapter 1. He says, I am the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he says this. And I have the keys of what? Of death and of Hades. You see, Jesus defeated death, and so now he stands as the sovereign over it. He stands as the sovereign over resurrected life. He is Lord over the people of the resurrection. He's head of the church, and he's the sovereign over resurrected life. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And these titles, just like those titles that we saw back in verse 15, they are titles that show us Christ's preeminence. They are titles of preeminence. They show us Christ's exalted position in this work of redemption. Just like an original creation, Christ is now the master over new creation. He's now the master over everything. But before we look at those titles, those three titles in detail, I want us to take some time to look at the reality from which those titles spring. Uh, we're going to save exploring those titles and the implications of them for, for next Sunday. Because I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at the reality in which these titles are grounded. I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at Paul's description of this extraordinary mission of hope which God the Son came to fulfill, a mission which gave him this place of preeminence and redemption. And Paul describes that mission for us in verses 19 and 20. You see, the titles of verse 18 are really built on verses 19 and 20. So that's what I want us to look at in the rest of our time this morning. Again, look at verses 19 and 20. Paul gives these titles, and then he says, here's the reason for these titles. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That was the plan. That was the plan. And that's that's the glory and the wonder of the advent. I I so appreciated Suzanne showing showing the kids this morning and all of us This is what Christmas is really about. This is the glory and the wonder of the Advent. It's about who came, how he came, and why he came. About who came, how he came, and why he came. We've talked about who came, the Lord of the universe. But here Paul also shows us how he came and why he came. Look at what Paul says about how he came. Look at verse 19. For in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased as well. What's Paul talking about there? What's he talking about? He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about God the Son taking upon himself our humanity. How do we know that that's what Paul's talking about? Well, Paul uses a similar phrase. Maybe you can just look over the next page there in your Bible. Chapter 2, verse 9. Look at what he says there. There he says, For in him in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells how? Bodily form. Bodily. 
So Paul's speaking there and Paul's speaking here about the incarnation. But what I find so fascinating about the way that Paul words this is he phrases it in a way that really emphasizes what we say is the divine side of the incarnation. Now, what I mean by that is that Paul is focusing less on the humanity and more on the the deity of Christ. He's making sure that the Colossians understand that in Christ, all the divine is there. All the divine is there. It wasn't diminished. It wasn't reduced. It wasn't given up in any way by the incarnation. In other words, God the Son didn't stop being God in order to become man. He didn't stop being God in order to become man. He didn't set aside his deity in order to take up upon himself our humanity. Now, some people try to argue that, but Paul's showing us here that's not what happened. He didn't set aside his deity in order to take upon himself our, take upon himself our humanity. No, this one who is God of very God, truly and fully God, also became man, but he never stopped being who he is. He never stopped being what we saw there in verses 16 and 17, the one who made and sustains and transcends all things. In him, in his humanity, Paul says, the fullness, what do you think that means? <laughs> yeah, means everything, the fullness of God, all the attributes of God was pleased to dwell. It's all still there in the person of Jesus. Is that easy to understand? <laughs> Not at all. It's staggering. Staggering to think about. The, the one who, who knew our weakness experientially, right? Walked in our shoes, right? The one who knew our suffering, not just in an abstract academic exercise, but experientially. The one who was born a babe in a manger. The one who grew and developed. The one who got tired and hungry. The one who slept and wept and prayed was also truly and fully infinite, glorious, all-powerful, holy God. Again. I don't understand it, but that's what Paul's telling us. He's telling us that the incarnation didn't diminish him. Let me put it to you this way. It didn't make him less than we need. It didn't make him less than we need. It didn't make him less than the Lord of everything. And that was something the Colossians needed to understand. They were being told, and we've talked about this in this study, they were being told that Jesus wasn't enough. And some might have been arguing in the church there, saying, well, the incarnation diminished Jesus. You know, it made him less than a sufficient Savior. But Paul says, no, 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 no. He wasn't diminished in any way. He who became truly human never stopped being fully God. In him, the fullness of God, and I love the way it's put, was pleased to dwell. Was pleased to dwell. He never stopped being fully God. And praise God, that's the truth, because that's the Savior that we need. <laughs> we needed Emmanuel. We needed God with us. And next, Paul tells us why. We needed the one who had made everything to come and step into this world which he had made, because the world that he had made needed rescuing. Amen. Needed rescuing. Look at the language that Paul uses there in verse 20. He speaks about reconciliation, about Christ coming to make peace. 
What we need to understand is that God the Son took upon himself our humanity because there was hostility. He came because there was enmity. He came because the entire created universe was unhinged. It was all out of harmony. The good world that he had made had ceased to be good. And that had happened because of what? Sin. It happened because of sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, all creation became a mess. All creation became a mess. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that the created world is in bondage to corruption. He says that it groans as if in labor pains because the fall affected everything. The entire universe is wearing down because of it. The entire universe is a mess. And guess what? So are we. So are we. We all live under the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion. We all bear the consequences of their action. We all live under the curse, which means what? Work is hard. People say, ah, it's hard. Yeah. After Genesis 3, that's the way it is. Childbearing is hard. I just know that from viewing things, not from going through it. But it's hard. Marriage is hard. It's hard. It's hard. After Genesis 3, it's hard. Life is hard. Life can be a mess. It wasn't created to be that way. But sin brought that upon us. Sin brought that upon us. And here's the thing. Unless we want to blame Adam and Eve for everything. Guess what? We've only added to the mess. Can I get an amen on that one? We've only added the mess. We've continued the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Each of us. Each and every one of us. You want to say, maybe, well, not me. No, no, no. Each and every one of us has chosen to go our own way. We have all chosen and still continue to choose each and every day to play the sovereign over our life. We get up on the throne like we have a clue what we're doing. Do we? No. No. Do you know what tomorrow's going to bring? No, but we act like we do, don't we? If I can just make everything in my life work this way, it'll be right. (laughs) But we do that. We play the sovereign like he doesn't know what he's doing and we do. We live out of our fallen hearts, living as rebels. Paul says, look at verse 21 there in the text. He gives a fitting description of the sinful heart, living alienated. He says, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that's, that's the way life always used to be for us. We're all part of this disharmony of the universe. We're all part of the mess. This, this universe, because of sin, is filled with rebellion. You have men and women all over the planet, all through history, who refuse to submit to God. You have fallen angels throughout the universe who stand as enemies of God. You have an entire universe who, which is, as one author put it, not the way it's supposed to be. I thought that was such a fitting description. as not the way it's supposed to be. It's not good anymore. It's at enmity with its creator, and it's hostile to the good purpose for which he made it. But here's the thing. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ came. That's why God the Son took upon himself our humanity and became Emmanuel. And here in verses 19 and 20, Paul shows us God's cosmic restoration plan. Three things I want to look at here in this cosmic restoration plan. And the first thing I want to look at is the scope of this plan. Here Paul shows us the scope of it. He says, the plan was to reconcile what? Look at the text. To reconcile a few things? 
To reconcile just you and me? No, to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. You see, here's the thing. The plan is bigger than us. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than your family. It's bigger than our church. It's bigger than our community. It's bigger than our country. The scope of this plan even surpasses our planet. Again, Paul says all things, whether on earth or where? In heaven. And if that language sounds familiar, it's because Paul's already used it back in verse 16. And remember when we worked through it there in verse 16, we said that all things means what? (laughs) All things. Things in every location, on earth or in heaven. Things visible and invisible. Things you can see, things you can't. Things spiritual and physical. All things means all things. Everything that Christ created, everything that Christ sustains, the whole universe that is for him and through him and in him, the restoration plan included all of it. All of it. The plan was universal in scope. It was a cosmic plan. It was the plan for... The entire messed up universe. All creation marred by sin was included in this plan. It's bigger than Mary. It's bigger than Joseph. It's bigger than some shepherds on a hillside. It's bigger than a few disciples from Galilee. It's bigger than just a few ordinary people. But that's such good news for ordinary people. It's such good news for ordinary people. Because the the goal of this plan is so extraordinary. And that's what Paul shows us next. The scope Now the goal. Look at the goal that Paul gives. Paul says the goal of the plan was to make peace. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. And here you need to make sure you understand what this word peace means. It doesn't simply mean a cessation of conflict. Often when we use the term peace, that's what we think of, a cessation of conflict. People will say two nations are at peace or a husband and wife are at peace. And really all they mean is they aren't fighting at this specific moment. (laughs) There's a cessation of conflict. But a war or in the relationship of a husband and wife, an argument may be brewing. It just hasn't broken out yet. So oftentimes we use that word peace to mean cessation of conflict. But when the Bible speaks of peace, it has something far more powerful, far more rich and beautiful in mind. The root of the biblical idea of peace is found in the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And that's a word that speaks of wholeness, uh, of soundness, of harmony, of everything being as it should be. The Garden of Eden, before the fall, was a place of shalom. Everything was as it should be. Everything was as it should be. But then sin entered, and shalom was removed. Shalom was gone. You see, sin is an attack upon shalom. Sin is an attack upon Shalom. Sin brings disharmony. Sin brings discord. Again, think about what happened in Genesis chapter 3. The man and the woman, they're created to be in this glorious, intimate relationship with God. Sin enters. And what's the first thing they want to do? Run and hide. Instead of enjoying this fellowship with God. Run and hide. They were created to be one, right? One flesh. And when God calls them to, to account for their sin, what do they do? Yeah, Adam throws Eve right under the bus, right? It's not, it's not me, it's this woman that you gave me. Discord, disharmony. Because of sin. It drove away, it attacks shalom. That's what sin does. And since Genesis 3, we've all been living you know, outside of Eden. We've all been living outside of shalom. We live in a world of disharmony and discord. 
I mean, we could just pull up the headlines, right? What do we see? Do we see a lot of shalom? Do we see a lot of harmony and unity? Now we see division and discord people shooting one another. We see, we see nature and man in conflict, these natural disasters. We see sickness and cancer. We see all kinds of conflict. Neighbors, people that should you know, live next to each other and, and care for one another. Yelling at each other. Spouses who should be speaking to one another. Not talking for weeks. Children who should delight in being under the care of their parents. So quick to want to get out on their own. All this disharmony. All this unsoundness. Again, the world is not the way it should be. It's not the way it was created to be. But praise God, he hasn't abandoned us in this. He hasn't abandoned us in this. He hasn't abandoned us in our sin and its effects. Instead, God had a plan. And the plan is that through Jesus Christ, it's all going to be changed. It's all going to be changed. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he says the plan was about making peace. Mark this down. The goal of the plan, the goal of the plan is to put the entire universe back the way it's supposed to be. Everything back in harmony with the will and the way of God. That's the goal of the plan. But how would God accomplish that? How in the world can all of this mess? And again, you just go read the headline. How how can all of this mess, this universe in conflict and discord, how can it be changed? What does the text say next? And through him, through Emmanuel, through God with us, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by what? The blood of his cross. You see, the coming of Christ wasn't just about the coming. It wasn't just about the coming. It wasn't just about the wonder of God with us, as amazing as all of that is. It was about God coming in order to put everything right through a bloody cross. Here's an important question, though. How does a bloody cross help the situation? How does what seems like more ugliness put everything right? Well, it puts everything right because the cause of the hostility, the cause of the the enmity, sin was dealt with. There on the cross. There, God the Son, who had taken upon himself our humanity and lived obediently, he died yeah, for sin. He died substitutionally. He, he died for us in order to remove the enmity between us and God. He died in order to take upon himself the condemnation that hung over us, that which caused division. And here's the thing. It couldn't just be a man dying for us. It had to be the God-man dying for us. It had to be a life of infinite value, dying to atone for the sins for which I should have suffered and you should have suffered for all eternity. It had to be a life of infinite value to pay for the cost of my sin and your sin. There on the cross, sin was dealt with. All of our sin was dealt with. A new life for us was secured. Here's the thing. All the saving grace that flows to us, guess the fountain that it flows from? The cross. It all flows from the cross. And now because of what Christ has done, all who embrace him by faith, we save from sin. 
Save from the penalty of sin. Never have to pay for it. Save from the power of sin. It's not the master anymore. And one day, hopefully soon, save from the very presence of sin itself. Save from the presence of sin itself. Through his sacrifice, we have peace with God. Harmony again. The way it should be. We have peace with God and we have peace with one another. We can know shalom again because of the cross. What Paul is referencing here is that on the cross, Christ wasn't just dying to give us peace. The bloody cross was about even more than that. Christ was dying to bring the entire universe back to the way it should be. You see, through the cross, Christ defeated sin and death and the curse, and he judged the enemies of God through the cross. Because of what Christ has done, the created world will want to be freed from corruption. Christ defeated the curse through his bloody cross, and now he can make all things new. Because of what Christ has done, the enemies of God will be judged. We look at the world and we say, how can it keep going on this way? Guess what? It won't keep going on that way. Because the Savior has come. And he is Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. And one day he will come back. And Satan and the fallen angels. And something that should sober us. All those who do not flee to Christ but remain in their rebellion will know Christ as judge. Because of the work of Christ, one day everything will be as it should be. The entire universe, the entire universe will be back in harmony with God. That's all because of the cross. That's Paul's point. That's Paul's point. And as you think about it, that's also the Bible's big point. The last chapters of the last book of the Bible, book of the Revelation, they end with a picture of shalom returned. What do we see there? We see a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And John tells us more than once there in the end, there'll be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. God himself will dwell with his people and everything is going to be as it should be. Do you long for that day? As we were singing this morning, all glory to Christ, I was I long for that day. And one day, that's the way it's going to be. And as you read through the book of the Revelation, and you you get to the end, and you see how it's going to be, you know what point is made abundantly clear through that book? It's all going to be that way because of the Lamb who was slain. That's the point of that book, and that's the point of the Bible itself. It makes abundantly, the Bible ends that way. So we get the point. It's all going to be that way because of the Lamb who was slain. And that's what Paul's saying here in Colossians. Christ brought peace. He brought restoration through the blood of his cross. And because of that, he is the preeminent one. He's the preeminent one over original creation, and he's the preeminent one over new creation. He's the preeminent one over redemption. He is, as Paul says back in verse 17, the head of the body. He's the life-giving sovereign of the people of God, the church, because of the cross. He's also the... The beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the crucified Savior who didn't stay dead, but rose conquering death and now stands as its master. He's the preeminent one because of what he accomplished on the cross. He is preeminent over the church. He's preeminent over the resurrection. 
And he is the preeminent one when it comes to hope. He's the preeminent one when it comes to hope. He's the hope for the universe. He's the hope for all humanity. And he is the hope for ordinary people like you and me. Amen. Amen. All who look to him will be saved. Will be saved. As I asked earlier, do we really understand the gravity and the glory of his coming? If he hadn't come, sin, the curse, the enemies of God, all humanity, all the division, all the disharmony would have continued. It would just keep on going. There would be no hope. No hope for this world in which we live. There would be no hope for all those people around you in your life. There would be no hope for us. Do we really understand the gravity and the glory of his coming and what it meant for ordinary people? Like you and me. Really let this sink in as I say this. If he hadn't come, we would be lost in our sin forever. We'd be lost in our sin forever. Forever at enmity with God. Forever under the judgment of God. Forever is a long time. I remember if it was Thomas Watson or one of the old Puritans. But he said, if you had all the grains of sand, all the beaches in the world, and you had this little sparrow, every thousand years, took one of those grains of sand and moved it from here to over there. When it was all said and done, you'd still have forever. Forever. If he hadn't come. Forever we'd be lost. Forever under the judgment of God. Forever at enmity with God. But on that night in Bethlehem, on that night with the angels, to the amazement of the shepherds, to the wonder of Mary and Joseph, in spite of their inability to understand it all, on that night, he came. He came. He came to ordinary people in the middle of their ordinary lives in order to give them, to give us, an extraordinary hope. That's his resume. That's his resume. He came to rescue the universe and to rescue you and me. And he has and he will continue to do it. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, I, I hope you know what I mean when I say this. That's worth celebrating every day, not just at Christmas time. Amen. Amen? So let's have a wonderful Christmas. But let's grab a hold of the heart of it and live in that every day. I mean, why do we gather here each and every week? To celebrate, to rejoice, and to worship this one who is our hope. I'm going to close our service, gathering together around his table this morning, celebrating, rejoicing, feeding our hearts on this one who is our hope. That he lived for us, that he died for us, and that he rose again so that we could have peace, shalom with God. Ask the men to come forward and would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, again I come to you saying, who am I to speak these truths? So glorious, so amazing so unfathomable, but I praise you that 
It's not just about us here in this room trying to understand these things, but in your grace and your mercy, you have given us the Holy Spirit, and he is more than capable to help these weak minds and hearts of ours. So I pray that he would continue his ministry among us. Help the glory and beauty and wonder of these truths that that you, sovereign, holy God, creator of the stars took upon yourself our humanity and he didn't do it just to be marveled at by us although that would have been glorious but you did it to die on that cross for us to rise again the third day in order to defeat curse in order to defeat sin, in order to defeat that which had made this universe a mess. And one day everything's going to be the way it should be. And we praise you for that. We praise you for that. And as we gather together around your table, I thank you for giving us this time. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for my own heart that we would feed on this truth of the gospel. That we are forgiven. That now forever for us is going to be forever of overwhelming glory. Forever and ever and ever. Shalom. Everything as it should be. No more struggle. No more battles with sin and discouragement and despair and sickness. No more mourning and weeping over death. Everything as it should be deserve it but in your grace you gave it to us so feed us on those truths as we gather together around the table these things I ask in your name amen